What is up, everybody? Welcome into the Deeply Funny Podcast. This is our very first episode, The Maiden Voyage. Uh, today we're going to be here with a good friend of mine and wildlife photographer, Marissa Ishimatsu. Marissa is someone that I have been fascinated with for years and years and years, and I couldn't think of a better first guest for us to have on the show. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm your host, Kristen Yaney. I am based out of Seattle, Washington. And uh, after an illustrious career as a food scientist, I recently left my day job and have been pursuing some creative arts. It is quite the process to start using your voice, trust yourself, and get your work out in the world. So I am making this podcast not from a place of perfection, but really just kind of calling out to you guys from the trenches, (laughs) being afraid and doing it anyway. So we'll be here every week. We're going to try and publish weekly or maybe even twice weekly episodes. Uh, We'll be interviewing lots of different creators from the heart who just talk about what it took for them to move their creative blocks out of the way and start putting their light out in the world. Um, I think you'll hear from today's episode, we all have such a unique perspective. We all have this deeply creative voice. And it's just a gift that we get to share with everybody else. doesn't matter if there's already people doing it. Nobody can do it exactly the way you can. You have a special lens. We all do. So get ready, sit back, tune in, and we will get started with our very first episode. Can't wait. Welcome to the Deeply Funny Podcast, Marissa. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you again, too. Oh, my God. I'm so excited for this interview. I, for years, have just like absolutely stalked your work on Facebook and social media. Thanks. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your medium? Sure. My name is Marissa Ishimatsu. As you can tell, I am half Japanese, my dad's side. He was born and raised in Japan. I'm first generation American. I do not look Japanese and I am do not speak Japanese and I'm pretty much the worst Japanese person in the world. In point of fact, I'm allergic to fish. So <laughs> I identify as Japanese, but it's been hard to find that identity at some point. I am a straight woman. I was born and raised in California. I went to college at Oberlin in Ohio, and I've always loved the natural world. I'm an only child, so I spent most of my days when I was growing up wandering around outside. We had a large yard, and I spent my days flipping rocks and finding the bugs and the salamanders under them, and I always had a real affinity for it. My parents would take me camping and take me to the national parks, and I grew up riding horses and going hiking and going fishing with my dad. The natural world is where I found solace. When I got to college, I really fell in love with it, but knew I didn't want to look at it through a microscope, but instead wanted to look at more ecosystem-based systems. And so I am now a biologist. I am a consultant here in California in the Bay Area. I live in San Rafael, and I help protect federally and state endangered species. Wow. That is awesome. Oh, and the reason why I'm on this podcast, I'm a photographer. 
I forgot all about it. I was like, tell me more about flipping these rocks as a kid because I am like feeling this in my soul. It comes from that. So I got to college and I met this guy um, who became my brother very quickly. We lived across the hall from each other. And when I got to college, I was really involved in biology. I wanted to do something, but I thought I wanted to do wetland ecology or I wanted to become like a professional diver or something like that. And I met this guy who was just obsessed with reptiles and amphibians. And I was in a really impressionable state. And you know those people that you meet in your life who once you meet them, you realize that your life will never be the same? He was that person for me. And I met him. We became very fast friends. We still are. And my life was never the same. He instilled in me a fascination and obsession with reptiles and amphibians. So... To bring it back to photography, there used to be these forums called this forum called Field Herp Forum. And people would post like their trip events and all these trips that they went on and animals they saw. And some people were amazing photographers. And I started seeing that and I started seeing the beauty of these animals that people often view as scary or ugly in a beautiful light in these photographs. And I just started taking photos. The first photos I took are hilarious and if you have on your blog for this episode i will share them because they are just hilarious how bad these photos are and i was so proud of them i was so proud oh my god i relate oh i can feel it burning in my chest (laughs) right it's like finding your journal from when you were like in middle school and you're like oh i was such a good writer and then you're like oh god all i wrote about was boys oh but you were so deep I had a lot going on. I had a lot to say. <laughs> oh, I still could sing you the song that I wrote that I thought was the best song and going to mm. be a number one hit. And you know what's so great about this? Like, I just want to pause because I think a lot of our listeners are people who like can probably deeply relate to this. They were great. Okay. They were great. They were, they were great. precious. And yes. like, I guarantee you that like at the end of my life, like if I go to the next world or whatever and I looked back, I would treat all of these things as gems uh-huh. and I probably <laughs> had a long way to go I totally feel that I my dad is an author and he journals every day he journals and they're all in Japanese and I can't read them which is one of the most greatest tragedies of my life and he's still alive but when he passes I'm it's going to be hard for me because I'm going to try to figure out what each of these say like I'm going to read them all sorry dad but I am And it's so important to journal. So when I was in college, my sophomore year, my dad and I went to Japan. And one of my class, it was for winter term. So at Oberlin, we have the month of January off to do whatever project we want. We have to get sponsored by a faculty member and then come back and deliver what we had promised the faculty member. You can stay at home and write a comic book. I had, a, I had a friend who wrote once wrote a comic book where each of the superheroes was also with diagnosed psychologically, which was interesting. So it can be anything you want. I had a friend who learned how to cook. I had a friend. You could do whatever you want. One, one year I went to the Denver herbarium and worked in the herbarium in the botanic gardens for a January. But one year my dad and I went to Japan and that's where he actually bought me my first camera, which is lovely. But what my project for winter term was to bring back a journal. And these journals have become such 
like staple of when I go on international trips. Every time I go on a trip, I write a journal and they take two to three hours every night just to write down what happened during the day, how I felt, what I experienced, where I went, the smells, the places, everything. Because I have such a crap memory that when I read back these journals, it's like I'm right there again. And so, yeah, these are really important. And even though it's a, it's a very, you have to be open to do it. And it's a very vulnerable place to do this, something like that. It's so important. So yeah, I might look back at them now and be like, oh, I should have done this or something like that. But they're so important. And now when I'm 90 and can't travel anymore, I've still got my journals and I can read through them, which is just such a lovely, my journals and my photographs. So I am absolutely astounded. I don't have words like you through adopting like this practice, just to take a step back for a second. It's like you've created this multi-generation journal practice that is now something that is could quite literally be passed through your family. And it's also really mind-boggling that you cannot read your dad's writing and that's a project in and of itself right whether you pay to have them translated or that's the impetus to learn the language and start doing the translation yourself that's like a masterpiece of poetry and puzzle making and all of these things like worlds left to explore without ever having to leave your desk (laughs) so that is really something and my God, does that make me want to start a journal? <laughs> just write a paragraph a day. I've tried yeah. to do that. And I just, I find myself being overly verbose and then getting bogged down in, oh, I need to do this. Which is why I only do it when I go on international trips. Like I can't do it yeah. daily. I'm not a daily person. I did keep one daily for a couple of days. And then I kept it through like the first couple of months of the pandemic. And yeah. that was, Ugh. that's going to be a really nice snapshot one day. Because that wasn't a, a very local journey, but it was a true journey. <laughs> That was like, I know this is not the most relevant thing for this podcast, but I have to tell you, at the very beginning of the pandemic, before it came to the U.S., when this was still something that was happening in Asia, I found like a snippet, a blog, something. I have no idea how it got publicized, but I saw this girl's journal who was living in China and it was like multiple entries of what her day and her week and her weeks looked like. It was probably like 14, 15 days long. And I remember reading it and my life had not changed. I was reading it and I was like, wow, this is really crazy. The stuff that's happening in Wuhan or whatever, this is insane. And I just remember reading it and I could feel the echo of a potential future and was like, that probably never happened here. Less than three months later, probably two months later. Yeah, we were in lockdown and I was living in New York City. So truly was, there was so much death. We're really fearing for your life to go outside. Um, That was a whole other conversation, but. Just the power of journaling. And I, gosh, you look back, right? There's tons of books and biographies, but yeah, it's just, a really, it's just another form of storytelling. And processing. Yeah. Being able to put it in, like going from your heart and your soul and your brain through your pen onto the page alleviates some of your stress and pressure from an event like that. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's so cool. So let's bounce back. So you were talking about how you journal when you go on international travel. And I have to say, admiring your work through the years, like watching you take these trips to the Amazon and do all of this, even when you were quite young. I remember finding out your age at one point and I was like, 
<laughs> who is this badass biologist wildlife photographer who's taking photos of snakes in the Amazon rainforest when I was, I don't know, doing Excel spreadsheets for Starbucks or whatever I was doing at the time. But yeah, talk to me about just, I guess, your passion for, yeah, biology, photography, the natural world, and like in some of the trips that you've been on, what are some of your highlights or things that really stand out over your career? Yeah. So I have been very fortunate and I come from a stable environment where I am able to say yes. And so when I was in college, I ended up landing a job during my last semester where I went to New Mexico and narrow-headed garter snake, Damnophis rufipontatus, if you're a scientific name person, in the Gila National Forest in New Mexico. And I took my first semester senior year off and did that instead, did photography there. And then I met a group of people who just opened my eyes to the world of reptiles and amphibians. And we traveled the world. So my 20s were, I will never find a decade that will top my 20s. I went to the Amazon rainforest, I guess twice, and I've been two more times in my 30s. I'm, today's my birthday. I am 33 today. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. So I've been to the Amazon rainforest, I think four times, all looking for reptiles and amphibians for photography. I've also been to India and Central America, Mexico a couple of times, did a couple trips to the, like some of the islands in the Sea of Cortez to find stuff. I've been all over the States multiple times in multiple places. And really the focus has been reptiles and amphibians. And I also have a long lens for birds. I do landscapes. Lately, I've been really getting into flowers. I really love the wildflower blooms that we have here in California. And I'm bored of the reptiles and amphibians right now. So I have been focusing a lot on the flowers recently. And it's been wonderful. As I said, I came from money and that comes into play a little bit in photography and talking about socioeconomic and in the arts. Photography is a really expensive hobby and it sucks. There's most of the people I see that are in photography or have good cameras or have the, I, for example, this year, I have a good camera. I've built it up over years and little bits of kit. And fortunately, my husband also is a photographer. So I've used some of his kit and just built up what I really like to use now. But once the camera isn't all of it, you also have to have the computer and the monitor. I got a printer this year or last year for the first time. And in order to print stuff, I started printing and all my colors were off because I didn't have a color accurate monitor. So then I had to get a color accurate monitor. Then I had to get a color calibrator for my monitor. And it's like all of this just costs so much money. So it's really, I feel very fortunate that I was able to start building my kit up and start and do all these tra this traveling. And yeah, I have quite a bit of credit card debt right now. I'm working on it, I promise. But I also have a very supportive family who allowed me the freedom to do all these crazy jobs and work, especially as a biologist in the field. I was working for pennies doing, and of course, spending pennies because you were camping every night, but doing research in Colorado, doing research in Washington, living on site in Georgia for gopher tortoises. And as I said, this forest service job doing narrow-headed garter snakes. It was, I was able to spend a lot of time in the field, in nature. And that's how you are a good wildlife or nature photographer is you just get out there. That's the, that's like the only piece of advice. But 
really, I was extremely fortunate to be able to say yes. And there is a lot of power in being able to say yes to things and putting yourself out there. When somebody says, okay, you want to go for a hike? Yes, I do. And you never know what you're going to see. I know exactly what I'm going to see from inside my house. As soon as I step out that door, I don't know what I'm going to see. So it's, it's, I was very fortunate to be able to step out of my door quite a bit in my 20s and start building up a portfolio and kind of a reputation for being in cool places. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Gosh, I'm just like, I keep finding myself at a loss for words, which is really out of character for me, I, I have to say. But I, man, like, I'm just standing in the resonance of like, I don't know, just like who you get to become, like, having that kind of 20s, like, that has to be really transformational, just spending that much time outside and in nature. And like, I hear myself like almost trying to glorify it. And I also hear you saying, no, I was working for pennies in the field. There but any money. It's you eat ramen every night. You have a little camp stove. You eat ramen every night. You're spending, you're getting your gas paid for if you're doing research. But other than that, it's just, you're camping out every night. We, and I think the longest stint I had without a shower was like 11 days in Washington. It's not easy. It's rough. It's hot. It's miserable. It's also unforgettable. And I wouldn't change it for the world. It is so much fun. And I love it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Let's segue from there. Let's bounce over to talking about representation in your field, because I know that's something that you carry on your heart a bit, it seems like. <laughs> I mean, that, it feels like that almost is like self-selecting for a male-dominated field. No showers, outside time. <laughs> so I don't know, when you were like, a, especially in your 20s, like a female in your 20s traveling around the world, like who else is in the room, or in this case, not in a room? Who else is outside? <laughs> Who's out there yeah. with the field? I think that there's a lot of women doing this. and But I think that the main factor is, like I said, it's socioeconomic. In fact, Doc and I, my, my partner and I went to, we just happened to be in Monterey like a couple weeks ago for a wedding. And it turns out the hotel the wedding was basically centered around was also hosting the largest outdoor nature photography uh, convention on the West Coast from B&H. It was called Optic West. And so Doc and I just decided to pop on in real quick. And I was reviewing the speaker list and I was reviewing like the vendors and I was looking around the room. Most of the vendors and most of the speakers were like white. And it was most of the people there were older white people and there were a smattering of other people. And that's great. Um, I think that because the gear needed is expensive, it's something that you can afford when you're retired or later in your career. It's hard to break into, but I guess that all of that comes to what is a photographer, like that, that defining question. And I don't have a good answer for that. And I'll, I'll, my little anecdote is, um, it took me a very long time to call myself a photographer. I had a camera, I went out there, I shot, I put my stuff on Facebook, I put my stuff on different forums, didn't call myself a photographer. Like I took photos by definition, e-photographer, but <laughs> I did for a while and then I met, I was on a project and for my work, not anything related to photography, but I had my big camera backpack with me because I'd bring it everywhere. And there was one of my coworkers, this young kid I'd never met before, 
He's like, oh, are you a photographer? And I said, yes. And he said, oh, so am I. So it's great. And he's like, yeah, I had a couple of stuff printed and pictures printed in books and, and stuff like that. I'm like, that's great. So a couple weeks later, he calls me. And he said, hey, this guy wants me to shoot in a certain way. He wants me to shoot with these settings. Marissa, what is ISO? What is ISO? What is F? What is a, how do I change shutter speed? I'm like, you just told me you were a photographer. What? <laughs> Oh, my but God. It's also what makes I have another friend in the same vein. She's a amazing backpacker, backpacker, has done the ATs, done most of the Pacific Crest Trail, most of the Continental Divide. And she's huge into backpacking, clearly can't bring a huge DSLR kit with her. She shoots on her phone and the way that she edits those pictures and applies filters and brings things out. They're beautiful. They are works of art. They're with her phone. Is she a photographer? Am I a photographer? Is this guy a photographer? And who gets to make that decision? Who gets to apply that label? Why am I more of a photographer than my friend who does gorgeous shots that I can't pull off from her phone? And that's, a, that's really tricky. I think it comes down to confidence and being able to put yourself forward and say confidently, I am a photographer, just like that guy did. I am a photographer, planting the flag. I am a photographer. And that's really hard to say for a lot of people who, like me, struggle with self-confidence. Like, at what point do I get to call myself a photographer? Is it when a stranger buys a print? That happened to me 10 years ago. Some random person bought a print from me. Is it when I get like a magazine buys a photo photograph from me. That happened five years ago. I have a photograph in Calicat. If you go to the California Academy of Sciences in Golden Gate Park in the city, my photograph is there. They paid for it. Is it when you get in a magazine? I was a centerfold in a magazine, not me personally, but my one of my photographs. <laughs> <laughs> Just like some little reptile or amphibian that you shot. My <laughs> sidekick, don't worry about it. <laughs> But one of my photographs of a snake was a centerfold in a magazine. It was like a um, publication that didn't go for very long. But do I get to call myself a photographer then? Or is it when I, I've been in many books, I've been in pamphlets, I've been in books in different languages. And yet last night I was talking to my partner and I'm like, am I a photographer? Can I call myself that? And at what point am I a professional photographer, quote unquote? What is professional? What is hobbyist, amateur, pro professional? What do these labels mean? And at what point do I, like, am I that? And so I think that in terms of representation, everybody's got phones these days. Everyone can do this. It's one of the most accessible media, but it's, we need to elevate people and give them the confidence to call themselves what they are. And label themselves they are a photographer and an artist totally god i have so many thoughts about this yeah in my medium i'll say i'm a writer and for the longest time really ever since i was a little girl this is always what i wanted to be i think it's because i was obsessed with reading books but i don't know like the way that language flows through me like i've always wanted to write and instead, I was a scientist because at one point in high school, someone said, but how are you going to make money? And I was like, well, I don't know. I never thought about that. Yeah. 
Um, and I, I was pretty good at it, right? So I, I went into science and it was great. I've had a really illustrious career making pumpkin spice lattes and all kinds of other things as a food scientist, which it's cool. It was always like this blend of creativity and science and arts and I've loved yeah. it. But secretly in my heart, I'm like, I'm a writer, I'm a writer, I'm a writer who never writes, like who never sat down in a chair. And it's like, I've carried this like secret alter ego identity with me for years. And every time that I would sit and write something, anything, even like a journal entry or like a blog, like I would see it and I would read it. And it was like we talked about like our little journals, but it's I'm really good. There's something to this. Like I see it in myself. And then I would hide and put it back on a shelf and go away from it again. And like the past like handful of years, especially during the pandemic, a lot of quiet time sitting around by myself, like it's just, okay, my whole life I've wanted to be a writer. Like I think it's high time that I just let myself become one. And what I think for me, like the single biggest difference is it goes back to the identity piece. Like the audacity of that kid to tell you I'm a photographer when he didn't even know what ISO was, but I don't know what ISO is. It's ISO. It's yeah. Anyway, it's one of like the basic tenets of photography. You've got shutter speed, you've got ISO, and you've got like your depth of field, your f-stops. And like the combination of those three things enables you to manipulate your camera to be able to get the shot you want. It's basic. It's a basic yeah. tenet. <laughs> I gathered from the context clues, right? So yeah. So what is my version of that? And it's just, I think I observed enough times like out in the world, like the audacity of these other people who said that they were this thing. And rather than be like aghast, I can't believe that kid called. I'm just like, no, I'm a writer. I'm going to start claiming it. You know how I know I'm a writer is because it doesn't have yeah. to be a book. It can be a two line poem or a note in my phone or like some beautiful copy that I made for this candle that I just produced. It doesn't matter what I'm writing. As long as the words are coming out of me, and I lately have even been realizing, like, podcasting, like, a writer doesn't only write books the same way a teacher doesn't only have to teach in an elementary school classroom. Like, any, my friend Courtney, that one's courtesy of her, but it's, like, anything that needs teaching, right? She's like, I was miserable teaching in a classroom. I realized eventually, oh, it's just anything that people need to learn. That's yeah. what I can teach. And having that freedom, it's like, I'm a writer, and I don't only have to define that as success when I write a New York Times bestselling book. That is I look not... forward to your New York Times bestselling book, though. Listen, okay, I would be lying <laughs> if I said I didn't hope to achieve that one day. <laughs> Let's all set this as like a little line in the sand that we can come back to and go, oh, holy shit. And all the podcasters who have gone on to make books, it's not like yeah. they're switching media, right? And no. a lot of writers who go on to make podcasts. It's, well, you can be that's both. What I, that's what you I can be both. realized is like podcasting is writing out loud. Yeah. All any of this is, and you can share this about photography too, I'm sure. It's like, all I can offer anyone is my perception on how I see the world. And me, that's what creativity is. And it's not an exclusive club that only certain brain patterns get to be in. You are alive. You have a unique perception of how you see the world that you can only offer back to us. And like, through that lens, through getting to see each other's work and the unique reflection of light, we're all this like mm -hmm. multifaceted prism. And that's all I can offer back to anyone. So whether it's like a comic book or a podcast or a graphic novel or a poem or like stand up, like I've started doing comedy too. It's like, wait, these are all just different reflections of the same stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And my definition of success, like, of course, I have goals. Of course, I want to push myself to achieve like 
whatever the writing version of Mount Everest is. <laughs> I want to do thing. But I don't call myself a writer when I climb my Mount Everest. I don't call myself a writer when I've sold 300,000 copies of my book. Like, I'm doing it. And I have just found the freedom of letting myself become what I've always wanted to become and relating to myself in that and steeping myself in that identity every day. Like, mm-hmm. any tell me to actually get to my goal it's that it's my own relation it's my own like validation like it's not outside it's within so that's where I came yeah and that's I've called myself a photographer in depending on how self-confident I'm feeling that day (laughs) I, I started photographing in 2011 was when I did my trip to Japan with my dad and bought my first camera which for all you camera files out there, was a super top of the line, not a <laughs> Canon was called an EOS X3. Or Kiss Kiss X3 was the Japanese version because the Japanese have to be cute and name it Kiss. Whereas for the American audience, it was the T1i is the equivalent. So for some reasons, the same camera, different names. Um, so this Kiss X3 was my first camera. And I, yeah, I bought it in 20, 2011. And I started shooting and it is now 2022. And I finally decided to start printing my things and selling them and really going through the journey of I've done calendars for the past couple of years. I did not have the time to do calendar this year, which is unfortunate, but I didn't. And I finally this year, I started printing my work and selling them at shows. The first show I did was a fundraising show for an organization called Save the Snakes here in Sacramento. And I was like, all right, if I sell one print, I do these gorgeous metal prints. I absolutely love my prints on metal. They are clean. They are beautiful. The color is great. Shout out to Bay Photo. If you guys need any photo stuff, like Bay Photo makes beautiful prints and they're reasonably priced. And I had, I printed out because I saved up for a little while, had enough money to do a larger amount of printing printed out a bunch of shots and I sold them and I sell one print, one print. I'm going to be so happy. I sold five and a ton of smaller prints that I made on my printer. These just four by six printed and matted and put in plastic sleeves. I sold a ton of them. And my profit from one day was about a thousand dollars on my first outing, my profit. And that was massive to me. And that made me feel really good. And I've I've done a couple of shows since. But then I did a show in San Francisco, completely different crowd, not a reptile amphibian crowd at all. And I sold one four by six all day, nothing else. And that was, okay, I got to pick my audience this year. I went back (laughs) to a different show and did over two days and I did quite well. I was, clearly my cat has something to say about that. (laughs) But it, thinking about, what's next I had my dad at one point started telling me like you gotta do this you should do this you should get your website up you should do printing more you should figure out this you should do this and I'm like but why why do I have to do this why are these the stepping stones that society has laid out for me I don't want to I'm gonna do what makes me happy or if this becomes a job I will not like it anymore like I'm only gonna do what I want to do what makes me happy the level to which I'm comfortable with And it's okay. That's okay. 
if I can stay at the level I'm at right now and just go to shows every once in a while, print some stuff every once in a while, sell a couple greeting cards on Etsy, and that's all I do, that's okay. I don't have to be in National Geographic. Would it be cool? Sure. Do I have to be? It would be cool to be employed by them and travel around the world and go to these amazing places and shoot my heart out? Yeah, that'd be great. But if I stay right where I am, that's okay. And that is a concept I've struggled with till last night. Like when I was, again, having this conversation, my husband and I talked for an hour last night just about this. Yeah. <laughs> you match that conversation. He's like, what's next? And I said, I don't know. And that's okay. And I, of course, I did not say that succinctly. It was more me waffling and being upset about where I am right now, but also being upset about where I am right now and pushing myself to feel like that's okay because that's a really vulnerable thing to say. <laughs> Especially in a society that's always telling you to be better. Oh, God. It's, right? It's always be better. What's next? And it's the not hustle. stay here. It's okay. Yeah, no, it's that it's the capitalistic like hustle mentality model. Mm -hmm. uh, personally, I'm like actively trying to deprogram in myself. And yet still like there it comes. <laughs> like yep. a free thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's and for me, again, self-esteem. Is it okay to stand still? Will I still find validation in myself if I'm standing still? And I'm really struggling and I really need to, I, I want to keep, continue to work on being okay with standing still. And trying not to compare myself too. Because yeah. I have friends, like I have a friend right now who just got an amazing job in Africa. And all she does is wildlife photography in Africa. And I'm like, what I want? 10 out of 10, absolutely. I cannot, I can't help but to feel a bit envious of, it, or quite envious of it. I'm going to be honest. Yeah. But that is not my reality right now. And that's okay. And I need to like very much bring it back to that's okay. You are standing still and you are in a position where you are happy with what you're doing and that's okay. So yeah. say, I want you to say more about that if you can, because. I love the the beautiful concept of standing still, right? Like in this hustle mentality world, holy shit. Yeah. But tie that back into the self-confidence, self-esteem. What does standing still mean to you or what's behind that phrase? I'm a, I'm a goal-oriented person. And you and I were talking a little bit before the podcast about goals and achieving goals and what happens when you achieve that goal. I'm a goal-oriented person in that... I find goals and I feel very fulfilled when I achieve them. That being said, I'm very bad at setting my own goals. <laughs> I'm a short term, like I find a project, I finish it. Let's do this. Next thing. I always got to find a project. I see the finish line. I finish it. Next thing. So in my, in a hobby or in an art form, it's much harder to define what those goals should be. They are. And what is actually realistic? So you're not setting yourself up for mental failure if in when you don't do that. Like, for example, I'm not going to set myself up to be a National Geographic photographer, not because I don't think it will ever happen, but because I don't think that in my lifetime I have 
the fortitude to be able to go after that and maintain my mental health, my physical health, and my financial health, mainly my financial health, because you get to be that level if you're going out to places constantly. And I've got two weeks of vacation a time a year. Like It's just not feasible. And a full-time job and rent to pay. It's just not feasible. So I think that for me, I am in a position where I'm doing shows, I'm selling my work. I have had complete strangers buy my work. In fact, this afternoon, I've got to set up an order because a complete stranger who's already bought one of my pieces now wants to buy a second piece. And that's amazing. Like the fact that my art is hanging in someone else's house who I've never met and I will never see is like mind blowing to me. And especially because it's photography, which everybody can do, can do it. Why wouldn't you have your own stuff up? Why wouldn't it it just blows my mind? And yeah, the two pieces that she picked are two of my best. (laughs) (laughs) Took hours in the field and a heck of a lot of luck, but great taste, right? Yeah, yeah, seriously. (laughs) One of the ones was actually like the full size piece of the shot that I actually sold to the Cal Academy. So it's there. But yeah, I think that I'm going to shows, I'm making prints, I'm still getting out there and shooting every once in a while, every once in a while. And if I stay at this level for the rest of my life, I'll be perfectly happy. That is standing still for me. I have, I just finished reading to a book in a huge way, which I don't think I can talk about right now, but it's spectacular and the author wants to do a volume two and really feature my photographs in that as well so that will be a big project for next year but I don't need to be anything more than I am I am who I am I don't need to make a photography podcast and I or like a photography blog or a nature blog which is all things that people have told me to do I don't want to do any of those things I'm happy just being me and putting in only what I can and not put pressure on myself to do something that I don't feel comfortable doing. Um, I was just talking a lot about like writing a blog or promoting myself more. I don't feel comfortable doing that. I'm comfortable doing what I am doing now. And that's okay. I don't need to learn a new skill. I don't need to become a videographer and do camera work for discovery which I do have friends who do and they're incredible at it that's yeah be like me breathing underwater it's not in the cards for me and that's okay totally god that's so beautiful oh and uncomfortable for me I'm like no I hate this advice but also in this moment yours that's wisdom something that I read about this stuff a lot because it's like the medicine that I most need right about the whole slowing down and yeah, our ego is, oh, you want to be a comedian? Get on Saturday Night Live. I'm like, I'm yeah. a 35-year-old woman, so it's probably not happening. But maybe. We never know. My big break. <laughs> but it's... Grandma Moses learned how to paint when she was 90. Yeah. There is still time. Betty White is an icon. I'm ready, Betty. Let's do this. Yes, exactly. It's the whole not selling yourself short thing, but it's... No. I love stand-up, and I love comedy, and I'm enjoying pursuing that, but I want to create in all kinds of different mediums. Like I'm just looking like Brene Brown is probably if you said, who do you want to be when you grow up? I'm like somebody like Brene Brown, except not like a hardcore researcher. I want to be more wishy-washy because <laughs> she's actually like a genius in her field. And I'm like, I'm not that. 
it's like I have a really high emotional intelligence and I have all these gifts and things. But the point is that like if I went and sat in a dingy bar night after night chasing down Saturday Night Live comedy or whatever, like where's the joy in that? Like where's the joy in the process? And at the end of our day, whether it's a hobby or we decide to make it our main thing in our career, finding our voice, all of that stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you are correct. Like putting the pressure on it, getting on the chase, having to be the best. That's our ego. It's driving Mm -hmm. us and it's pushing us and it's all based on this fear or validation or then I'm worthy, then I'm worthy and like Mm -hmm. fucking exhausting. And like, I think at the core, it's what gives you your spark? What is it that makes you feel most alive? Like, when do you feel in flow state? When do the walls come down and you lose where you start and stop and you're really in it and you just know that you're living? And that can come from swimming or jumping off a cliff or plunging in cold water (laughs) like I did the other day and yeah when do you feel most alive when I feel the most aligned in flow with the oneness creation the universe it's when I'm writing yeah and it's hard to get to that place sometimes I have to knock some crud off before I find it but that's why I want to keep doing it that's the joy and yeah, it isn't about what I achieve or what I accomplish. It's just the devotion of doing the craft. I agree with that. I think I'm a, a very, I'm a very in my own head. I'm thinking about a million things at once. When I am photographing something, my mind goes completely blank. And if I am focusing on anything else besides that animal right now, I will not get a good photograph. And when you're doing reptiles and amphibians, a lot of the time you are posing the animal. So you have to sit there for a long time. I'm a very impatient person and I'm always, I'm a time maximalist and then I'm always trying to do three things at once because that way I can get three, like three times a month of stuff done. And the one time that I find myself becoming quiet and patient is when I'm working with an animal and making sure to handle it with respect and care Making sure for me, I do a lot of reptile on uh, what's called herp and habitat. So herp, for all you people out there who are laughing at herpetology, yes, it comes from the same Greek root as herpes, which means to creep. Herpetology <laughs> is the study of reptiles okay. and amphibians. I have never have I ever known that. I just learned that today. <laughs> to creep. You call yourself a herper and you get really weird looks from most people, but that's what we are. <laughs> so we do. So yeah. I'm a herper. And when you're working with herp photography, you're trying to do, for me, I do herp and habitat. So I do a lot of wide angle work showing the animal its natural habitat. And not only that, but I try to put my animals in poses as if you just walked up to them like that. And it's just how they would be without you being there. And a lot of the time it's me posing an animal and then just letting it go and slither away or crawl away or hop away. And getting the shots as it's hopping. Of course, sometimes I grab it again and bring it back and then do it again. But if you're thinking about literally anything else, when you're trying to wrangle an animal plus your rig that's a couple thousand dollars sitting next to a mud puddle against a rock scree that if you drop your camera at one place, it'll slide down into your mud puddle. And but your and your animal will get away. And you're just like eight things at once trying to make sure. If you are thinking about anything else in the world besides that animal and that shot and being in the moment right here, right now, you will lose it. And not only that, I have a lot of my photos for me have what I call a je ne sais quoi because I don't know what it is. And I, 
a lot of people, when they see my photos, can feel the same emotions that I feel when I take them. I took them and I have the story behind them. They, there's something that translates in a photo that has, you can't put it into words, but for some reason, when you look at this photograph, you feel something. And I have a couple of photos like that where it'll stop people in their tracks and they'll look at this and just be like, wow, how did you get that? What is that? And they feel, my dad says that my photographs are very relaxing. A lot of photographers out there are really big into the sensationalism, the crazy lighting to make you like pow, like lots of saturation, lots of stacking, Milky Way shots that are just superimposed on a well-lit tree and it's there's a lot there and it's very loud. And I, the way that I see the world is much quieter. And it's finding the moments in nature that are tiny that you miss, that you walk by every minute, but seeing the beauty in those tiny moments and finding that peace. I think that's what my je ne sais quoi is. I think it's the little non-sensational peace in the photograph. And that's what I find beautiful, especially being a biologist and being a biologist of such a commonly abhorred species, as in snakes and especially rattlesnakes. For me, you have to find those little moments where the snake is quiet and just existing in its habitat and finding those it's almost relatable, right? And you find an animal that is so reviled and you find the peace and you show people that animal in its habitat with that peace. It changes perception and changes, but potentially changes minds and conservation and for, for the benefit of conservation. But it's all about finding that Zen, that peace and relaxing into it and letting your heart show in your art. Yeah. I mean, that's so exquisitely beautiful. <laughs> and also, that's exactly how I have always experienced your photographs, which is such a cool moment. But it just brings me back to that concept of presence. Yeah. For both of us, like what we talked about, like it's presence. It's and like presence. that is sacred. And people can feel it. And in response to your question of, is this art? Like, why would <laughs> anyone buy my photo and not just take this thing on their phone? Whoa. And I will say, for me, it's a more spiritual thing, but whether your God is nature or whatever your thing, like, to me, there is something holy and there is something sacred about being able to just, yeah, give a voice. And as a wildlife photographer, I think you're uniquely positioned where it's like, for whatever reason, like, the earth has chosen you, like, she wants to work together and like, you're able to uplift and help give a voice both for, like you said, some of these kind of aboard species where there's a lot of fear or like misunderstanding, misconception. Like you're right. Seeing one photo of the snake and feeling the peace imminent or wow, I'm really just observing this thing in its natural habitat mm -hmm. makes me step back and go, oh, I'm the one interfering with it, not mm -hmm. the other one. Totally. My dad's favorite story he tells about me is when I was like maybe five or six. And at one point in time, he was, I, we're driving home from something and I turned to him and I said, dad, is mother nature God? And he loves that yeah. story. He's like, how, did, how do I answer that? But I do believe that 
nature is the fundamental truth of the world. If we weren't there, nature would persist. And biology, chemistry, and physics aren't going anywhere. And it's so important to walk outside and observe the world around you and observe especially human impact on the world and see your place and our species place here and how we have changed it and how we can respect it. Yeah. And thank you so much, Marissa, (laughs) for coming on and just sharing your unique voice, your unique perception of the world. Like, I know that anyone who hears this is going to get a lot out of it. So this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, sure. And I'll plug away real quick. uh, Yeah, I was going to ask, where can they find you? (laughs) Where do we find these beautiful Um, photos of your work? My my Instagram is at Marissa, M-A-R-I-S-A dot Ishimatsu, I-S-H-I-M-A-T-S-U dot photography. I'm on Etsy and I'm working on getting more things up there, but uh, my shop is called Stone Pine Studios. Ishimatsu means stone pine in Japanese, so Stone Pine Studios. And my Flickr, if you guys know what Flickr is, um, if you just Google my name, it comes up, but it's Flickr, F-L-I-C-K-R, no E, dot com slash photos slash Marissa dot Ishimatsu underscore Ishimatsu. Anyway, it's all on my name. I'm the only one of my name in the world that's on social media or has a presence anywhere. Yeah, and uh, you can find me at the California Academy of Sciences. <laughs> a couple of other random books. American Snakes by Sean Graham has a couple of my photos in it and an upcoming book about snakes in California. That's going to be a lot of my photographs. And yeah, pretty excited about all those. So keep an eye out. Super exciting. Yeah, we'll make sure and link to all your stuff everywhere that we post for Deeply Funny. But yeah, thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. And we will talk to you guys next week. Hey, friends. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. You know, I've had a long-term belief that words find us whenever we need them. So if you're listening today, I trust that these words were always meant to reach you. So thank you so much for tuning in, your tile, receiving them, and ultimately just coming into the fold of the Deeply Funny podcast. We're so excited to be here and be launched with you guys. We'll be here next week with more conversations from the heart, talking to different creators around what it took for them to get past their blogs, ultimately just start creating and putting their work out in the world. Deeply funny, y'all, because your heart is both. <laughs>